0: Welcome to the GreenFluence podcast.
1: Hi, I'm Maya Valentin.
0: And I'm Vis Vikalingam.
1: We're the co-founders of GreenFluence and we are on a mission to empower students and professionals to create a positive impact within the sustainability and responsible investing space through education and connecting you with a community of passionate individuals.
0: We have combined our passion for sustainability, for finance and entrepreneurship, to form the GreenFluence community. So whether you're working in these fields or just want to learn more, the GreenFluence community is one for you to join. You will find us on LinkedIn, on YouTube, and where you listen to your podcasts. So on this week's episode, we have the pleasure of talking to Shane Nichols, who is the CEO of The Good Return. So Good Return is a global non-for-profit organization and Licensed Finance Institution, which enables people living in poverty to achieve economic empowerment through responsible financial inclusion. So
2: welcome, Shane. Hi, Viz. Hi, Maya. It's a pleasure to join you. Thanks for having me.
1: (laughs) Just a very random question. You have a lot of books on your bookshelf. If you had to embody yourself in one book that you had to choose, which one would that be?
2: Ooh... Gee, that's an interesting one. I kind of kind of read a range of different stuff. Um, I'd probably choose, the, actually, one that I'm reading at the moment. Um, it's called The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. And oh, yeah. um, it's really interesting because it's it talks about business. You know, business books tend to be talking about how you can win at business. And the central premise of this book is that business isn't a game that you win or lose Um, it's not like a game of of football or tennis it's it's a long term it's an infinite undertaking a bit like politics and so adopting a win-lose mindset is not is not conducive to success in in the business world and um and therefore you need to focus on your cause on building trusting teams you know, having been flexible and adapting, and really thinking long term, and having the courage to lead long term. So, I guess that sort of embodies, I guess, my my career journey and, and the focus that I have on sustainability and impact.
1: Most definitely. Well, that's a really good um, link to, I guess, our first question, and we wanted to explore explore your career um, background, and we know that you have over twenty years of financial. In- inclusion, and enterprise development experience. So Shane, how did you find your way into this sector?
2: I, To be honest, I stumbled upon it uh, by accident. I was living in China about 20 years ago, and I was working as a journalist and freelance writer. And I, I did a trip around Western China. Um, I was doing some writing, and I was I was actually travelling by motorbike, and I picked up a hitchhiker and he was he was a local guy from Qinghai province in uh, sorry from Sichuan province in western China and um I took him back to his home he'd been working on a road construction site and uh and when we got back to his village he said would you like to come in for a cup of tea and and you know I was hot and sweaty and I said yeah that'd be great And I went in and I I discovered very quickly that, you know, his family were living in extreme poverty. They they were living in a a small one-room hut. Um, His grandmother was was lying on a rug on the floor and she was obviously sick. Um, And they had a a little fireplace in the middle of the hut. and, um, And so he stoked up the fire to heat some water for my cup of tea. He didn't have any tea, by the way. Um, and so it was it was a white tea it was just hot water but um, and in the fire was this potato from, left from their previous meal and you know looking around I could see they had barely any food or provisions and then he he offered me the potato being very hospitable and I said no no I don't want it and you know we played this game of going back and forth for quite a long time and in the end it felt rude to keep saying no. And so I took, you know, I ate this potato and had, had my cup of hot water and we had a chat for a while. And, um, and then I left and, and as I was leaving, I felt very awkward. I was like, gee, I should give this guy some money or, you know, do something. But we were, we were just two guys that met, you know, I didn't, it, it felt weird to, to just hand him money. Um, and so I, I didn't, but I left there feeling inadequate because I wanted to do something. Um, Anyway, I continued on my travels and about a week later, I met uh, another guy that was working for a, he was working as a volunteer for a microfinance organization. And I'd never heard of microfinance. And and so I asked him a few questions and he told me about it. And I thought that sounded fascinating. And I thought, gee, I'd really like to write a story about this. So I asked if I could go along and visit and I joined him and I met the lady that founded this organization. and went out to the villages and saw the work they were doing with people living in, in very impoverished conditions, very similar to the guy that I'd met previously. And I could, I was really struck by, gee, if, if he and his village had these sort of opportunities, it could really make a difference because, you know, I saw people getting access to a bit of training and education alongside a loan, and being able to drive their own development and their own journey and earn some income and improve their lives. And and so I was blown away. I was I was sold immediately, and I uh, then enrolled in a master's degree, um, majoring in international development with a focus on microfinance. And I was lucky to be able to do my master's research with the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. So, on one of the early microfinance interventions in China. So, that was a really great intervention. I just I just stumbled upon um, stumbled upon what became my life's work. That's amazing. I think
0: it just goes to show, like a lot of great things happen by chance. Um, yeah, that's fascinating, Jane.
1: Would you encourage other people to go out and do the same thing? Like go out, just explore the world. And I know a lot of students who finish high school, for example, like to go on gap years, but they tend to go to Europe or go on a Kentucky trip. You know, what what would you tell them about looking at the world from a, a different perspective?
2: I think probably the key thing is don't rush it, Um, you know, in terms of your career journey. You've got a long, long time. You've got plenty of years to work ahead of you. Um, No doubt you'll go through a whole range of different um, jobs and roles over the course of your working life. And and there really is no rush, especially when you're in your 20s and you're relatively unencumbered. You know, take your time, explore. Don't worry too much about making money or or your career path. That'll fall into place. You know, if you can find your passions and pursue those, everything else will fall into place.
1: Exactly what we want to do here, right, Miss?
0: Just take risks and and see what happens and follow your passions.
1: (laughs) And so on the topic of working in Asia, so you did work in China and in Mongolia as well as program manager and Um, microfinance for uh, the Department of Foreign Affairs um, or Australia Aid as well. And what was this experience like and, you know, was it eye opening for you to continue down this um, career path further?
2: It was was an amazing experience. So, in fact, what happened when I was studying my Masters, I applied for a role as a volunteer back with that organisation, that microfinance organisation that I mentioned. And they accepted me as a volunteer and I I was about to sign up for a two year volunteer assignment. At the same time, a job came up at the Australian Embassy in in Beijing, working on Australia's rural development program in China. And I really, really uh, debated for a few days over which role I should take. I was really drawn to both for very different reasons. And I actually called the the lady that founded the the non-profit microfinance organization and told her my dilemma um, and said I was struggling to make a decision. And we had a long chat and she encouraged me to take the other job, um, which was very generous of her, um, just because of the experience I would gain through that. And what working for the Australian government, I had the opportunity to work with such a wide range of agencies. So Australian government in its development program, its development cooperation program, you're partnering with different UN agencies, you're working with the World Bank and Asian Development Bank, you're working with other bilateral donors or other countries governments. Um, But you're also working with private sector contractors and you're working with nonprofits. And so I got to sort of experience what the international development sector does across all those different forms and see that the pros and cons of each, that they each have a role to play. Um, And so that was a fascinating experience. There was also, I guess, you know, a lot of learnings and and, and there were things that we had sort of failures and frustrations that sort of helped helped me to learn. Um, One example was uh, we had a demonstration microfinance program which was working with the Agricultural Bank of China, one of the biggest banks in China. We chose one of their branches um, to pilot what a microfinance program looks like. So it's working with much poorer people than they would normally work with. And uh, it was it was a very successful program. Um, so after, after about five to seven years, they had 15,000 clients. Um, these were low-income people who were accessing loans, very good repayment rates. They were saving. You know, they were running small businesses. And this, you know, the bank was charging interest um, and it was able to recover its loans and earn interest to cover the cost. So it was economically viable for the bank and we were quite quite proud of the activity. Um, however, uh, what was happening in, in the sort of bigger world at the time was China was entering the World Trade Organization back in 2001 and um, one of the requirements for entry into the World Trade Organization is that you make your banking sector um, available to international firms and China had a problem at that stage. Roughly 70% of of its banks' uh, portfolios were non-performing. So there was a big problem with non-performing loans. And so the the Chinese government really wanted to clean up the banking sector before it introduced competition with foreign banks, understandably. And one of the decisions they took was um, the the Agricultural Bank of China that we were partnering with had had also had a high degree of non-performing loans. And so they closed all the branches that had high degrees of non-performing loans. And unfortunately, the branch that we were partnering with was one of those. So even though our program was successful and profitable, um, it it fell um, in in the great cut that happened at that time. And so all of that hard work, um, sadly, didn't eventuate. And these are just some of the challenges Mm -hmm. you deal with when you're working at a governmental level. So, but there were also successes. You know, I also worked um, in Mongolia. um, One of a really successful program that Australia had had with many uh, for many years with Mongolia is a scholarship program where um, Mongolians would have the opportunity to do a master's degree in Australia and then go back and play leadership roles in the country. And I went up there to Ulaanbaatar, the capital, and, and met with a bunch of the Mongolians who'd graduated—they called themselves the mozzies or the Mongolian Aussies—and um, they would get together once a month and and play pool and drink beer, which is what they used to do when they were studying in Australia. Um, and so I went out with them one night, and I was blown away to find, you know, the caliber of people that were around that room. There was a, a foreign policy advisor to the president, there was um, an economic advisor to the prime minister, there was a member of parliament. Um, there was there were several business owners you know really influential people and so Australia's aid to Mongolia was helping to you know contribute to you know the development of the country but also really good relations between you know the countries and across the region so yeah I learned a huge amount through those roles it was it was fantastic
1: wow and I mean those countries are also quite beautiful um, but it's really good to see that you know there is a big part for us to play in, whether that's nonprofits or governments to actually help with their development still. There's a lot that we don't see on the media side. And so I guess it leads to the next question of you've learned about um, foreign aid and microloans. How did this lead you to becoming the CEO of Good Return and what's your mission there?
2: So the last job that I had um, when I worked um, for the Australian government in China was an evaluation of this, uh, one of our microfinance programs in uh, Qinghai province in the Northwest. And um, we hired a consultant to come, an independent consultant to come and review the work that we'd uh, we'd done. And so we hired the only person in Australia who had actually managed a microfinance institution. Um, He'd he'd managed a, a microfinance organization um, in Africa, in Uganda. Wow. And his name was Guy Winship and uh, he came out and I spent a few weeks with him in the fields, um, in Ching and, um, we got on fabulously. I was planning, um, to leave at the end of the year. And, uh, he said to me, I'm, I'm just setting up a nonprofit in, in Sydney. Would you like to come and join me? And, uh, and there weren't too many nonprofits that were working in microfinance and, um, and, Based on my experience with the different types of agencies, I was particularly drawn to nonprofits um, just because of the, the clarity and purity of their mission. Um, you know, it's not compounded with, um, you know, I guess, a range of other competing objectives. Um, and some of the best work that I saw being done on the ground was being done by nonprofits. And so I was drawn to that and I went and joined Guy. Um, there was two of us at the beginning Um, we we had a focus very much on on two things It was it was access to finance for people living in poverty but also education um, to make sure that they're able to make good use of that finance and so financial education and small business and that's really remained the focus of good return over over you know what's now almost 20 years Um, and we've grown Um, sadly guy passed on a couple of years ago Um, I took over a CEO five years ago. Uh, But over that time, we've grown the organization from two of us to over 60 staff now working across 10 countries and um, dozens of programs working with government, with nonprofits, with for-profits, with that same objective of, of helping people living in poverty to access finance so that they can pursue their own economic development on their own terms.
0: Yeah, awesome, Shane. I think like it's really interesting that in the past five years, you've been CEO, we've seen a rise in sustainable investing, a rise in financial inclusion. And you mentioned a lot about microfinance loans. So I think um, a lot of our listeners will want to understand what benefit do microfinance loans provide for people living in poverty and how does that help them escape poverty and their own economic
2: development? Well, I guess the first point is that microfinance um, is not just loans and, and people living in poverty are exactly the same as everyone else. They, they need the same types of services that we all need. And really, when you think about yourself and your family and how you got to where you are, it's, it's not hard to see that you know, if you didn't have access to a savings account, if your family had never had the opportunity to borrow, whether it be for a house or a car or a business, it's very hard to get ahead financially. And so microfinance is the same services, it's savings, it's loans, it's insurance, it's remittances, but it's specifically addresses the needs of low-income people. Um, Now, what's really interesting is if you look at at access to financial services around the world, World Bank data suggests that 1.7 billion people lack access to formal financial services. And interestingly, um, poverty data around the same time shows that about 1.8 billion people are living below the $3.20 poverty line. And and there's a very high correlation between those two groups of people. Now, banking services alone are not going to get people out of poverty. Um, However, they are a really important building block. Um, Unless you have the opportunity to save and borrow and transfer money, etc., it's very hard to get ahead economically. So it's it's really, it's an important foundation for, you know, for moving out of poverty, but also for economic development um, more generally. And, um, you know, I can, I guess I can share a story from um, some work that we did in Nepal. Um, I, I, I went there to evaluate a program that, that we were running, um, which was in, in the Western part of Nepal. And uh, I went to a workshop, which was at a, at a sort of a regional town centre and there was a lady there that was representing her village and she was really dynamic you know she was standing up in the workshop and telling the officials what her village needed etc and uh, and she had her daughter you know sitting alongside her and um, and so during one of the breaks I asked if I could speak to her and one of our local staff translated for me and she sort of told me her story and she said that in her village in Nepal, where her family had lived for 200 years, she had never shared a cup of tea with the women from the other castes. Um, And when this microfinance program came to her village, the very first requirement was that they form a group that involved all of the castes um, and they had to share a cup of tea. And she said that that action in itself was just so Mm -hmm. liberating for her. Suddenly she just felt, you know, released. Um, she hadn't had much education, only a couple of years of schooling, but she went through our financial education course and she was actually elected the treasurer of the group um, by her fellow group members. Then um, she did a business planning course um, with us and she sent her husband off to do a bit of a feasibility study. She had an idea to set up a tea shop in the village. Um, so he did sort of a bit of legwork and was asking around doing some sort of surveys and things. Um, then she applied for a loan she started a small tea shop and and she said, now I'm somebody in the village, you know, I'm I'm earning money. People look up to me. And she put her hand up to come to this workshop. And she said, look, now I'm talking to you, a foreigner, um, you know, about what we've done in my village. I've come such a long way in just a few years. And what was lovely about it was um, that her daughter was with her and you could just see with a mother like this and such an inspiring role model, you know, that daughter was not going to, was not going to live a life of poverty. You could see they were breaking that intergenerational cycle um, right there before my eyes. It was really powerful. So, you know, it's a lot more than just banking. It's, um, you know, it's that sense of empowerment that really, that makes all the difference. Yeah, no, that's
0: amazing. I think the key thing I got from that was these microfinance loans, not only create financial inclusion, but also more social outcomes and better outcomes for the community. And bringing people together and sort of, um, I guess, putting aside preconceived notions and getting people to cooperate. So I think that's amazing. Um, so as Shane, I think something I wanted to bring up is a very topical issue. And it's based on the idea if, I guess, to, to what extent should larger institutions and, bank and banks have a role to play in economic development in less developed regions? Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on
2: that. Banking is a private sector activity. The private sector does banking a whole lot better than nonprofits do um, and, and the vision is for an inclusive financial system. you know it's not to have one system for rich people and a different a micro system for poor people. Um, and so that was you know microfinance was really a tremendous success story because nonprofits demonstrated to the for-profit world that you can actually do this, profitably and viably there was there was really a perception that lending to poor people was full of risk and cost etc but microfinance found ways of making that work um, through innovation and I guess nonprofits, you know were able to take on that risk you know because they were funded by grants and governments etc they could take on they could experiment more and with greater flexibility Um, they didn't have shareholders to answer to um, but they demonstrated that it could work and so you know, it really had its birth in the 70s with in, in Bangladesh with Grameen and BRAC and evolved through the 80s and 90s. But by the early 2000s, it was a lot of commercial players in the microfinance sector. And today, it's primarily a commercial sector. Um, and I see that as a really positive thing. And, and more and more larger commercial banks are getting involved and, and are involved in delivering pro-poor financial services. So we're, we're gradually achieving that vision of, of inclusive finance. Um, but it hasn't been without its growing pains. And and it still is, you know, essentially in, I'd say in the early 2000s um, or certainly in the 1990s, lending to people living in poverty largely wasn't regulated because big banks weren't doing it. And so anyone could more or less do it. And nonprofits could largely be trusted in that space. Um, But as soon as it became a commercial activity, you know, things changed very quickly. There was a lot more aggressive lending practices, a lot more aggressive sort of sales practices and collections practices, and, and a lot of um, a lot of issues arose from that. And so, banks, uh, sorry, governments started to then regulate the sector. And nowadays, in nearly all countries, there are regulations around you know lending to in, in low income communities. Um, but it's very hard for governments to reg- to enforce those regulations. And so one of the key roles, you know, of a nonprofit like mine, like Good Return, is holding those institutions to account and maintaining standards and educating the sector on standards in responsible banking. So, you know, you no longer really need nonprofits to be doing the lending. Um, private sector can do that, but in terms of making sure that it's it's benefiting people who are living in poverty, that's really an important role for the nonprofit sector to play. And also just that 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 innovation edge, you know, there's still a role for us to play in that space. Yeah, awesome. That's really hardening to know, Shane. And um, I think
0: it's really good you mentioned about the history of, I guess, the roles that various non for profits have played throughout time. So I guess looking at more modern times, um, based on the whole COVID nineteen situation, how has that impacted um, microfinance? Um, in terms of the microfinance sector, like has that had an impact on access to finance? Um, any other impacts?
2: It's um, certainly COVID has affected some sectors like tourism and international trade have just been decimated, and and so even you know household level businesses that rely on that income. For example, we work in Nepal in the north where they rely on trekking income um, flowing down through the economy and. There's nothing. There's been nothing coming in for you know the past eighteen months, so that's been devastating for those communities. Um, in other places where we work, you know, agriculture tends to be holding up quite well um, because you know there's a greater demand for domestic cons- um, domestic produce, and so you know people that are providing um, selling to domestic markets are doing okay. Um, In the microfinance sector, there was a survey done by the World Bank at the end of 2020, which showed that 88% of microfinance institutions had had put in place sort of repayment holidays or or given people the opportunity to take a break on their loan repayments. Um, And that does have a flow on impact for microfinance institutions. And it also has impacts for for, for borrowers as well. Um, And so we are now seeing kind of increased rates of non-performing loans in the sector um, through job losses and business closures, etc. And of course, that affects the households and and the small businesses um, as well. So the World Bank did another study or an estimate on the impact and and they've estimated that 100 million people fell back into poverty in 2020 as a direct result of COVID-19. So it's definitely been a you know, it's it's definitely had an impact on global poverty. We've had such a positive trajectory in terms of reducing poverty over the last 30 years, but um, certainly 2020, it went backwards and, and we're really hopeful that over the course of the year ahead, we'll be able to sort of get back on the right trajectory.
1: The second part of uh, this podcast that we want to focus on was impact investing. Um, so, you know, I took a a global leadership program seminar with Shane and uh, he gave an overview of what impact investing was and it was really insightful just to hear that as well from um, a nonprofit perspective and so what I'd like to ask if you could share with us about um, the rationale and the strategy underlying the good return impact investment fund
2: sure well Look, having worked in microfinance for, for a while, um, microfinance was really the first major form of impact investing. So what happened through microfinance was um, microfinance organizations demonstrated that you could work with low-income people towards social outcomes, um, but you could do it in a profitable way. And so and microfinance institutions needed capital to grow. And so that led to the emergence of these investment vehicles that were called microfinance investment vehicles during the 1990s. Um, and these were funds, investment funds, coming mostly out of, out of Europe and North America that were investing in microfinance organisations. And they were investing with the aim of, of getting a social, of achieving a social benefit, but they also wanted a financial return on their investment and they were getting it through microfinance. and And that movement really grew in the early 2000s into what's now known as impact investing and in a whole range of different sectors, this notion that you can achieve positive social and environmental outcomes um, um, in addition to getting your money back and getting a return. So um, for us at good return, I think what we were finding in microfinance is that Micro micro loans are often $500 to $1,000 or maybe a couple of thousand dollars, Um, and they tend to be for household level businesses. They don't tend to generate employment for other people very much. Um, And, you know, not everyone is an entrepreneur. Um, A lot of people just want a job, and, and the same applies all around the world. And so you know there was an issue around job creation and and small businesses um, were really struggling in a lot of the places that we were working above the micro level at the sort of small and medium enterprise level were struggling to access finance the banks didn't want to know them Um, there's a few reasons for that probably one of the big ones is collateral they didn't have the collateral that the banks need you know banks Um, quite often require 100% collateral on a loan in in the form of some sort of useful asset. And and these families, these small business owners don't have any useful assets to the bank. The second one is they don't have a banking history with the bank. And so the bank can't assess their credit worthiness. Um, And so and and often they don't have well documented business plans either that meet the bank's requirements. So there's all these small business opportunities that go begging um, and don't get financed. And so we saw a real opportunity there. Um, we rather, however, rather than an organization like Good Return coming in and lending directly to those small businesses, we don't see that as the role for an international organization. Our mandate is very much on building local um, infrastructure and local systems. Um, and so what we would do is we would identify opportunities, in particular opportunities for women um, and opportunities that created jobs for low-income people. Um, And we look at particular agricultural sectors. So an example is in the Solomon Islands, um, coconuts. You know, in in a rural community in the Solomon Islands, um, people would harvest coconuts from trees. Once a week, a boat would come around, they'd throw all the coconuts on the boat and the the buyer on the boat would just give them whatever the market rate was and that was it. And there was an organisation that we discovered in the Solomon Islands that was value adding at the community level. They developed this fantastic um, equipment that you could use to crush coconuts and extract virgin coconut oil. Um, And then you could then grade that and and sell it. And and they would then sell it on international markets. So the people at the village level would get 10 times the price because the coconuts were graded and, um, um, and, and, and packaged, ready for export. Um, so the problem was that this equipment costs about 25,000 Australian dollars um, and that's too, too expensive for, um, you know, for local people to afford themselves and the banks were not lending for these activities because the banks saw risk, they, you know, they didn't um, have experience with, with these particular small business owners. Um, so what we did was we came in and we worked with the banks and said, look, we'd really like you to lend for these activities, it's a viable business, they've got a market, um, they've got access to the infrastructure and we can help to de-risk that for you. Um, We'll we'll take some of the risk by providing a guarantee um, so that if if you experience any loss in those loans, we'll cover 50% of your risk. Um, So that was a way to induce local banks into lending for this sector um, and hopefully demonstrate that it's viable and something that they can continue to do into the future. And in order to fund those guarantees, we then went out to investors in Australia and said, can you please put money into a fund so that we can provide those guarantees? And that became our impact investment fund. And um, so that was the first project that we ran in the Solomon Islands. And since then, you know, we've done a capital raise, we've raised funds um, and deployed it on other projects around the region.
1: Considering the difference between microfinance loans and um, the fund that you are you have created um it just shows how important you know think about from a larger scale the job creation aspect and that economic flow down of why we need funds like this and not just um you know loans as important as they are needs to come from both sides
2: yeah that's right and and there's also an important role there for government so um in order for us to go out and attract investors into this, we had to also de-risk it a bit for the investors. Um, and so the Australian government um, put in some money into what we call a first loss tranche. So that means if, if, we, if we provide those guarantees and, and those guarantees get called on and we have to pay them out, um, we use government money first of all to pay off any of those, those calls on the guarantee. So that protects the investors. It means that the investors in the fund um, are much more likely to get their money back um, and that gives them confidence. And that's a really good example of how government can kind of stimulate mm-hmm. the impact investing sector. The government doesn't have to be the investor itself, but it can it can de-risk and crowd in private capital.
1: see. And so um, on that note, Could you give us a quick rundown on the three characteristics of impact investing?
2: Sure. Um, Well, impact investing, I guess, is, you know, it's a method of investing and its purpose is to achieve social or environmental outcomes. And so some of the characteristics are, first of all, it has to be intentional, the social or environmental impact. It can't just be incidental. You can't just make an investment in a company and it, it happens to you know for example sell medicine somewhere and and make a profit and say oh well i'm doing good for the world the purpose of impact investing is that from the outset you intend to to generate social or environmental benefit and that it's measurable Um, the second one is that there's a return expectation um, at the very minimum an expectation that you'll get your money back but usually an expectation that you'll also get Um, a benefit as in some interest um, financial return on your investment. And that can range from sort of um, sort of quasi market rates to like full risk adjusted market returns on your investments. Um, And then another characteristic is that there's a whole range of different asset classes and, and return expectations from impact investing. So, you know, it's all the traditional forms of finance from, you know, Private equity to different forms of loans, um, guarantees, cash—you know—all the different investment types can, can be forms of impact investment. And of course, it happens—you know—in all countries across the world. It's not just in less developed or emerging markets. It's uh, in, in in all countries. There's opportunities for impact investment. But I, I really do think this is a generational phenomenon, um, and. You know, as the transfer of wealth happens, you know, over the, over the coming years and decades, um, that is definitely going to change. Um, as an example, I met with the chairman of, of, of a very large bank um, to discuss impact investing, and um, he was an older fellow who's who's just retiring. Um, he was he was actually quite knowledgeable on the topic of impact investing, um, but he told me he doesn't believe in it. You know, he, he basically said, look, I, I believe in, in markets and and investing, the purpose of investing is to maximise your financial return and that shouldn't be compromised. Um, and I believe in philanthropy and, um, and I don't want to compromise my philanthropy with financial considerations. Um, and for him, those are two very separate worlds. But, you know, when I talk to millennials and Gen Z, you know, they very much understand that every decision they make in life has an impact. Um, And I think intuitively understand that that finance is an important tool for living out our values, Um, whereas not too many baby boomers see the world in this way. So I'm really excited for the future because I think Gen Z and future generations are wired for impact. Just in terms of getting involved in the impact space. Yeah, for sure. um, So... There's a bunch of ways. First of all, if, you, if you're working, um, and that could be a part-time job or it could be a full-time job, um, then you are, you're saving money into your super, whether you like it or not. Um, and that's one resource that you've got at your power. And so the first thing to do would be to look at which super fund your money's going into um, and, and make sure that it's an ethical and responsible super fund. And then actually log into your super fund and choose where your money is allocated within that fund. So make sure it's going towards ethical investments and and responsible investments. Um, I guess the second thing is if outside of super, if you have some money to invest, if you know if you're thinking about investing in the share market, for example, there's a whole bunch of managed funds that you that and listed funds you can you can buy in at different price points. It not you don't have to have millions of dollars. Um, And so look for some of the rating sites that assess the um, impact credentials of those funds um, and and invest your money in funds that that produce, you know, social and environmental returns. And quite often they have quite competitive financial returns as well. So you don't necessarily have to compromise. Um, And then if you want to get involved at a more grassroots level, um, then, you know, try becoming a microfinance lender. So through like my organization, Good Return, have a website where you can get on there and fund a microfinance loan to a woman borrower in Cambodia or or in the Pacific, for example. Um, And there's other organizations out there that do similar things. Cool. So Shane, we're going to move to the speed round questions. Are you ready for
0: them? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Cool. Okay. Firstly, you mentioned about the infinite game. What are your other book recommendations?
2: Um, um probably impact. Um, so there's a great book called Impact. I mean, <laughs> probably predictable that a lot of my reading is focused in this space. Um, but it's really about, you know, how, how business can have a positive impact on the world um, and and how anybody can get involved and sort of, uh, you know, and, and forge a career in that space. Um, you know, there's a whole bunch of different readings on that space, but um it, it's it's really very timely at the moment because we're seeing a massive flow of capital going into it, the, the world of impact and impact investing. And so, yeah, I'd, I'd highly recommend that as a read. Awesome.
1: And second question, we love this one, but what advice would you give to your younger self?
2: I'd say back yourself. Um, you know, it, don't be afraid to... Um, pursue your, your dreams and opportunities, particularly you know, while, while you've got the flexibility to do that. Um, I, was, I was very fortunate. I had an incident when I was uh, 20 years old. I had a really bad skiing accident, broke both my legs, couldn't walk for six months. Um, and, and the doctor told me that if I had, I was tumbling when I hit a tree and he said, if you'd, if you'd tumbled a quarter turn more, you would have hit your head and you'd be dead um with the, the size of the impact that you had and 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 that sort of forced me to reevaluate my life and i made a decision then that i wasn't going to make any important life decision based on money um, and that's really stood me well <laughs> um, i'm so glad i'm so fortunate that that happened to me it sort of shook me some sense into me at a, at a pretty young age so that's you know that's the advice that i would give to others as well yeah no i definitely i
0: definitely love that advice shane um So I guess like in addition to your work on good return, you were a non-executive director of Palmera Projects, which works in Sri Lanka. And you were also on the board of the Australian Council for International Development. So
2: what would be your key learnings of being a nonprofit board member? Um, Look, I'd say the first one is that you can actually make a difference. So boardrooms are not just stuffy uh, environments, as you know people often think. You know, there's a lot of really good debate that happens around a board table, and when you're sitting at a board table, you get to make really important decisions. You know, for example, you know, for an organisation like Good Return, you know, decisions about what countries we should go to and what markets we should be going to, and those decisions have real impacts for real people. Um, so anyone that has an opportunity to get involved in a board of any kind and you know that could be anything from it could be your local sporting club um you know it could be a company it could be a non-profit it could be anything um, it could be a university society those sorts of roles are really you can make a difference um probably a second thing is that you have to have the right people um, around the table um i talk to a lot of CEOs and um, a lot of CEOs have boards that are just nightmares. Um, and the CEOs spend half their time dealing with the fallout of, of very difficult boards that, you know, um, either either don't play their role, they overstep their role, or they don't play their role properly, or there's infighting, etc. So getting the right mix of people on the board is really critical. Um, I'm very fortunate to be on three really well-functioning boards. Um, and then the third thing is just around the value of a diversity of experience and views. And, and it might sound a bit cliche, we all know the research on the benefits of diversity, but you really see it around the board table because I guess when you're at work, there are not many opportunities where <clears throat> you're getting a, a group of you know, say six to 10 people sitting around a table all discussing the one problem you know in a work environment people tend to be off working by themselves on, on specific playing specific roles but um and so when you've got sort of a group of people all discussing one problem there's no point having that discussion if they're all saying the same thing it's only valuable if they're saying different things and they're bringing different points of view and they've got different life experiences and different worldviews. and so you know it's it's so critical to have that diversity um, and and you really see it playing out on boards. and And thankfully, um, diversity is improving on boards. But we've still got a long way to go, you know, both in terms of gender but also cultural diversity and diversity of age and diversity of life experience
1: When you are managing or you are on a board for a nonprofit, it's the same principles really apply as. Or profit or non-profit, it's no um, lesser threshold, or you have to be able to govern that organisation to the highest standard.
2: That's right. The, the governance responsibilities are, are, are really the same. Um, it's just that you don't have shareholders that you're you're responding to. It's the you know it's the wider community and stakeholders that you're ultimately accountable to. But all the all the fiduciary requirements and legal requirements and risk management and uh, all the stuff that comes with being on a, on a private sector board is exactly the same as for a non-profit board. And non-profits are also not for loss. You have to manage your finance as well. <laughs> <That's> true.
1: <laughs> and so, I guess, final question is, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and about your projects and your organisation?
2: um so yeah check out goodreturn.org you can see a profile of not only me but but also other people that work in the organization and and get a sense for you know who's on the board who are the staff what are their what are their experiences and backgrounds um, and what are the types of programs that we run including our impact investing work and our microfinance work Um, lots of information there and um, feel free to feel free to reach out to me on linkedin if you want to know more Perfect. Well,
0: uh, thanks so much, Shane, for being on this podcast. I think all our listeners, myself and Maya, uh, we've got a much better understanding on the great work you do at the good return and also understanding like microfinance because I know a lot about impact investing, but I didn't realize that microfinance was like, I guess, the start of that impact investing. And I think it's amazing how you actually go to these communities and see the issues they face and then create financial solutions. So, um I found that really fascinating and I think a lot of our listeners will really resonate with your advice so yeah just I wanted to thank you
2: so much for being on our show great great chatting with you both and and congratulations on this on this series it's very exciting